for, d against him, the people in general felt that the time for writing notes, for parleying had passed, on December 12, 1916, Germany, in a formal note, had offered to enter into peace negotiations, but did not specify any terms, the note referred in boastful language to the victorious German armies, it was rejected by the Allies as empty and insincere, the President on December 18, 1916, had addressed all the belligerents asking them to indicate precisely the terms on which, they would make peace, Germany's reply to this note was no more satisfactory than before, the Allies replied demanding restorations, reparation and indemnities, on the 22nd of January the President appeared before the Senate in his famous, Peace Without Victory, address, in which he advocated a world league for peace, his views were received sympathetically, though the Allies point doubt that no peace based on the condition of things before the war could be durable, and that as matters stood it would be a virtual victory for Germany, it was the President's last effort to bring peace to the world without resorting to armed force. The most biased historian is bound to affirm that Woodrow Wilson exhausted every effort not only to keep the United States honorably at peace, but to bring about a pacific attitude and understanding among the belligerents, when finally he saw that no argument save that of the sword would avail, when finally the hour struck, he became the man of the hour courageously and nobly, after President Wilson's failure to bring about even a pacific attitude among the warring nations. No peace appeal from any quarter calculated to receive respectful attention was made, excepting that issued by Pope Benedict August 15, four months after the United States had declared war. The President summarized the Pope's proposals as follows, His Holiness in substance proposes that we return to the status existing before the war, and that then there be a general condonation, disarmament, and a concert of nations based upon an acceptance of the principle of arbitration, that by a similar concert freedom of the seas be established, and that the territorial claims of France and Italy, the perplexing problems of the Balkan states and the restitution of Poland be left to such conciliatory adjustments as may be possible in the new temper of such a peace. Due regard being paid to the aspirations of the peoples whose political fortunes and affiliations will be involved, the President's reply to the Pope forcibly stated the aim of the United States to free the world from the menace of Prussian militarism controlled by an arrogant and faithless autocracy, distinguishing between the German rulers and the people. President Wilson asserted that the United States would willingly negotiate with a government subject to the popular will. The note disavowed any intention to dismember countries or to impose unfair economic conditions. In part the President's language was, responsible statesmen must now everywhere see if they never saw before, that no peace can rest securely upon political or economic restrictions meant to benefit some nations and cripple or embarrass others, upon vindictive action of any sort, or any kind of revenge or deliberate injury, the American people have suffered intolerable wrongs at the hands of the imperial German government, but they desire no reprisal upon the German people, who had themselves suffered all things in this war, which they did not choose, they believe that peace should rest upon the rights of peoples, not the rights of governments the rights of peoples great or small, weak or powerful their equal right to freedom and security and self-government and to a participation upon fair terms in the economic opportunities of the world, the German people, of course, included, if they will accept equality and not seek domination, about five weeks prior to the Pope's proposition, the Germans had again put forth the peace feeler, on July 19th, the German Reichstag adopted resolutions in favor of peace on the basis of mutual understanding and lasting reconciliation among the nations. 
The resolutions sounded well but they were accompanied by expressions to the effect that Germany in the war was the victim of aggression and that it approved the acts of its government. They referred to the men who are defending the fatherland, to the necessity of assuring the freedom of the seas, and to the impossibility of conquering a united German nation. There was no doubt in the mind of any neutral or any belligerent opposing Germany that the German government was the real aggressor and that the freedom of the seas had never been restricted except by Germany herself. Hence there was no tendency to accept this as a serious bid for peace. The resolutions figured largely in German internal politics but were without effect elsewhere. Stockholm. Sweden was the scene of a number of peace conferences but as they were engineered by socialists of an extreme type and others holding views usually classed as anarchistic. No serious attention was paid to them. The pacifists in the allied and neutral countries were more or less active, but received little encouragement. Their arguments did not appeal to patriotism. Going back to the beginning of the year, within a week after the president's peace without victory speech before the Senate, Germany replied to it by announcing that beginning February 1st, it would begin in restricted submarine warfare in certain extensive zones around the British Isles, France and Italy. It would, however, out of the kindness of its heart, permit the United States to use a narrow track across the sea with a landing at Falmouth, one ship a week, provided the American ships were painted red and white and carried various kinds of distinguishing marks. This of course was a direct repudiation by Germany of all the promises she had made to the United States. The President saw the sword being forced into his hands but he was not yet ready to seize it with all his might. He preferred first to exhaust the expediency of an armed neutrality. On February 3rd, he went before a joint session of the House and Senate and announced that Ambassador von Bernstorff had been given his passports and all diplomatic relations with the two empires appeared. On February 12th, an attempt at negotiation came through the Swiss minister who had been placed in charge of German diplomatic interests in this country. The president promptly and emphatically replied that no negotiations could be even considered until the submarine order had been withdrawn. On February 26th, the lower house of Congress voted formal permission for the arming of American merchant ships as a protection against submarine attacks, and appropriated $100 million for the arming and insuring of the ships. A similar measure in the Senate was defeated by Senator Robert M. LaFollette of Wisconsin, acting under a loose rule of the Senate which permitted filibustering and a limited debate. The session of Congress expired March 4, and the President immediately called an extra session of the Senate which amended its rules so that the measure was passed. Senator LaFollette's opposition to the war and some of his public utterances outside the Senate led to a demand for his expulsion from that body. A committee of investigation was appointed which proceeded perfunctorily for about a year. The senator was never expelled but any influence he may have had and any power to hamper the activities of the government, were effectually killed for the duration of the war. The suppression of the senator did not proceed so much from Congress or the White House, as from the press of the country, without regard to views or party. The newspapers of the nation voluntarily and patriotically entered what has been termed a conspiracy of silence regarding the activities of the Wisconsin senator. By refusing to print his name or give him any sort of publicity he was effectively sidetracked and in a short time the majority of the people of the country forgot his existence. It was a striking demonstration that propaganda depends for its effectiveness upon publicity and has given rise to an order of thought which contends that the newspapers should censor their own columns and suppress movements that are detrimental or of evil tendency, by ignoring them. Opposed to this is the view that the more publicity a movement gets, and the fuller and franker the discussion it evokes, 
the more quickly will its merits or demerits become apparent. If any evidence was lacking of German duplicity, violation of promises and general double-dealing, it came to light in the famous document known as the Zimmerman Note, which came into the hands of the American State Department and was revealed February 28th. It was a confidential communication from Dr. Alfred Zimmerman, German Foreign Minister, addressed to the German Minister in Mexico and proposed in alliance of Germany, Mexico and Japan against the United States. Its text follows, On the 1st of February we intend to begin submarine warfare in restricted, in spite of this it is our intention to endeavor to keep neutral the United States of America. If this attempt is not successful, we propose an alliance on the following basis with Mexico, that we shall make war together and together make peace. We shall give general financial support, and it is understood that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in New Mexico, Texas and Arizona. The details are left to you for settlement. You are instructed to inform the President of Mexico of the above in the greatest confidence as soon as it is certain there will be an outbreak of war with the United States, and suggest that the President of Mexico on his own initiative, should communicate with Japan suggesting adherence at once to this plan, at the same time offer to mediate between Germany and Japan. Please call to the attention of the President of Mexico that the employment of ruthless submarine warfare now promises to compel England to make peace in a few months. The American steamer city of Memphis, Vigilantia and Illinois had been sunk and 15 lives lost in pursuance of the German submarine policy to torpedo without warning and without any regard to the safety of crews or passengers. All ships found within the barred zones. The president could no longer postpone drawing the sword. Being convinced that the inevitable hour had struck, he proved himself the man of the hour and acted with energy. A special session of Congress was called for April 2nd. The day is bound to stand out in history for in the afternoon the president delivered his famous message asking that war be declared against Germany. He said that armed neutrality had been found wanting and in the end would only draw the country into a war without its having the status of a belligerent. One of the striking paragraphs of the message follows, with a profound sense of the solemn and even tragical character of the step I am taking, and of the grave responsibility which it involves. But in unhesitating obedience to what I deem my constitutional duty, I advise that the Congress declare the recent course of the Imperial German government to be in fact nothing less than war against the government and people of the United States, that it formally accept the status of belligerent which has thus been thrust upon it and that it take immediate steps not only to put the country in a more thorough state of defense, but also to exert all its power and employ all its resources to bring the government of the German Empire to terms and end the war. Congress voted a declaration of war April 6th, only six senators out of a total of 96, and 50 representatives out of a total of 435, voted against it. Congress also, at the request of the President, voted for the creation of a national army and the raising to a war strength of the National Guard, the Marine Corps and the Navy. Laws were passed dealing with espionage, trading with the enemy and the unlawful manufacture and use of explosives. Provision was made for the insurance of soldiers and sailors, for priority of shipments, for the seizure and use of enemy ships in American harbors, for conserving and controlling the food and fuel supply of the country, for stimulating agriculture, for enlarging the aviation branch of the service, for extending credit to foreign governments, for reissuing bonds and for providing additional revenues by increasing old and creating new taxes. The extra session of Congress lasted a few days over six months. In that time it passed all the above measures and others of less importance.
It authorized the expenditure of over 19 billions of dollars 19.321.225.208, including the amount appropriated at the second session of the Priesting Congress. The amount reached the unheard of total of over 21 billions of dollars 21.390.730.940. German intrigues and German ruthlessness created an additional stench in the nostrils of civilization when on September 8th, the United States made public the celebrated Spurlos Versant telegram which had come into its possession. It is a German phrase meaning, sunk without leaving a trace, and was contained in a telegram from Luxburg, the German minister at Buenos Aires. The telegram of May 19, 1917 advised that Argentine steamers be spared if possible or else sunk without a trace being left. The advice was repeated July 9. The Swedish minister at Buenos Aires sent these messages in code as though they were his own private dispatches. On August 26, the British Admiralty had communicated to the International Conference of Merchant Seamen. A statement of the facts in 12 cases of sinkings during the previous seven months in which it was shown how Spurlow's versant was applied. It was shown that in these cases the submarine commanders had deliberately opened fire on the crews of the vessels after they had taken to their small boats or had attempted to dispose of them in some other way. Within six weeks after the declaration of war our government was preparing to send troops to France. An expeditionary force comprising about one division of regulars was announced May 14th. General Pershing who was to command arrived in England June 8, and in France June 13. The first body of our troops reached France June 27 and the second a little later. The safe passage of these troops was remarkable, as their departure had been made known to Germany through her spies, and submarines laid in wait for the transports. The vigilance of our convoying agencies continued throughout the war and was one of the high spots of excellence reached in our part of the struggle. Of a total of over 2.000.000 soldiers transported to France and many thousands returned on account of sickness and furloughs. Only 661 were lost as a direct result of German submarine operations. On December 7, the United States declared war against Austria-Hungary. This was largely on the insistence of Italy and was valuable and gratifying to that ally. President Wilson on December 26 issued a proclamation taking over the railroads of the country. W.G. McAdoo was appointed Director General. The proclamation went into effect two days later and the entire rail transportation system, for the first time in the history of the nation, passed under the control and management of the government, excepting the revolution in Russia which led to the abdication of Tsar Nicholas I. March 11, 15 and so disorganized the country that it never figured effectively in the war afterwards. The year was one of distinct advantage to the Allies. Coup el Emiral was retaken by the British February 24. Baghdad fell to the same forces March 11. From March 17 to 19 the Germans retired to the Hindenburg Line, evacuating a strip of territory in France 100 miles long and averaging 13 miles in width. From Arras to Soissons, between April 9 and May 14, the British had important successes in the Battle of Arras, capturing Vimy Ridge April 9. Between April 16th and May 6th the French made gains in the Battle of the Aisne. Between Soissons and Reims, between May 15th and September 15th occurred an Italian offensive in which General Cadorna inflicted severe defeats on the Austrians on the Carso and Benceza plateaus. The British blew up Messina's Ridge, south of Ypres, June 7th and captured 7.500 German prisoners. June 12th King Constantine of Greece was forced to abdicate and on June 29th, 
Greece entered the war on the side of the Allies. A mutiny in the German fleet at Wilhelmshaven and Kiel occurred July 30th and a second mutiny September 2nd. August 20th 24 the French recaptured high ground at Verdun. Lost in 1916. October 23rd 26 the French drive north of the Aisne won important positions including Malmaison Fort. The Germans retreated from the Kemen de Dames. North of the Aisne. November 2nd. Between November 22nd and December 13th occurred the Battle of Cambrai in which the British employed tanks to break down the wire entanglements instead of the usual artillery preparations. Irlandwood dominating Cambrai was taken November 26th. A surprise counterattack by the Germans December 2nd compelled the British to give up one-fourth of the ground gained. Jerusalem was captured by the British December 9th. The British National Labor Conference on December 29th approved a continuation of the war for aims similar to those defined by President Wilson. Aside from the collapse of Russia, culminating in an armistice between Germany and the Bolsheviki government of Russia at Brest-Litovsk, December 15th, the most important Teutonic success was in the big German-Austrian counter-drive in Italy, October 24th to December 1st. The Italians suffered a loss of territory gained during the summer and their line was shifted to the Piave River, Asiago Plateau and Brenda River. Brazil declared war on Germany October 26. Chapter VII. Negroes respond to the call. Swift and UNHALT Ingerath you permitted to volunteer only National Guard accepted no new units form selective draft their opportunity partial division of guardsmen complete division of selectives many in training enter many branches of service Negro nurses authorized Negro YMCA workers Negro war correspondent Negro assistant to secretary of war training camp for Negro officers first time in artillery complete racial segregation when the call to war was sounded by President Wilson. No response was more swift and in halting than that of the Negro in America. Before our country was embroiled the black men of Africa had already contributed their share in pushing back the Hun. When civilization was tottering and all but overthrown, France and England were glad to avail themselves of the aid of their Senegalese, Algerian, Sudanese and other troops from the tribes of Africa. The story of their valor is written on the battlefields of France in imperishable glory. Considering the splendid service of the in many cases half-wild blacks from the region of the equator, it seems strange that our government did not hasten sooner and without demur to enlist the loyal blacks of this country with their glowing record in former wars, their unquestioned mental attainments, their industry, stamina and self-reliance. Yet at the beginning of America's participation in the war, it was plain that the old feeling of intolerance, the disposition to treat the Negro unfairly, was yet abroad in the land. He was willing anxious to volunteer and offered himself in large numbers at every recruiting station, without avail. True, he was accepted in numerous instances, but the condition precedent, that of filling up and rounding out the few Negro regular and National Guard organizations below war strength, was chafing and humiliating. Had the response to the call for volunteers been as ardent among all classes of our people, especially the foreign-born, as it was from the American Negro, it is fair to say that the selective draft would not necessarily have been so extensive. It was not until the selective draft was authorized and the organization of the National Army began, that the Negro was given his full opportunity. His willingness and eagerness to serve were again demonstrated. Some figures dealing with the matter, taken from the official report of the Provost Marshal General General E. H. Crowder will be cited later on. Of the four colored regiments in the regular army, the 24th Infantry had been on the Mexican border since 1916, the 25th Infantry in Hawaii all the years of the war, 
the 9th Cavalry in the Philippines since 1916, and the 10th Cavalry had been doing patrol and garrison duty on the Mexican border and elsewhere in the West since early in 1917. These four regiments were all sterling organizations dating their foundation back to the days immediately following the Civil War. Their record was and is an enviable one. It is no reflection on them that they were not chosen for overseas duty. The country needed a dependable force on the Mexican border, in Hawaii, the Philippines, and in different garrisons at home. A number of good white regular army regiments were kept on the side for the same reasons, not however, overlooking or minimizing the fact not to the honor of the nation in its final resolve, that there has always been fostered a spirit in the councils and orders of the Department of War, as in all the other great government departments to restrain rather than to encourage the patriotic and civic zeal of their faithful and qualified Negro aides and servants, that is to say, to draw before them a certain imaginary line, beyond and over which the personal ambitions of members of the race, smarting for honorable renown and promotion, predicated on service and achievement, they were not permitted to go. A virtual deadline, its parent and wet nurse being that strange thing known as American prejudice, and known of anywhere else on earth which was at once a crime against its marked and selected victims, and a burden of shame which still clings to it, upon the otherwise great nation, that it has condoned and still remains silent in its presence. Negro National Guard organizations had grown since the Spanish-American War, but they still were far from being numerous in 1917. The ones accepted by the War Department were the 8th Illinois Infantry, a regiment manned and officered entirely by Negroes the 15th New York Infantry all Negroes with five Negro officers, all the senior officers being white, the 9th Ohio, a battalion manned and officered by Negroes, the first separate battalion of the District of Columbia, an infantry organization manned and officered by Negroes, and Negro companies from the states of Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts and Tennessee. Massachusetts also had a company known as the 101st Headquarters Company and Military Police. The 8th Illinois became the 370th Infantry in the United States Army, the 15th New York became the 369th Infantry, the 9th Ohio Battalion and the companies from Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts and Tennessee, as well as the District of Columbia Battalion, were all consolidated into the 372nd Infantry. When the above organizations had been recruited up to a war strength there were between 12.000 and 14.000 colored men representing the National Guard of the country, with a population of area code 12000000 Negroes to draw from, the majority of those suitable for military service anxious to enlist. It readily can be seen what a force could have been added to this branch of the service had there been any encouragement of it. There was not lacking a great number of the race many of them college graduates, competent to act as officers of National Guard units. Many of those commissioned during the Spanish-American War had the experience and age to fit them for senior regimental commands. The 8th Illinois was commanded by Colonel Franklin A. Dennison, a prominent colored attorney of Chicago and a seasoned military man. He was the only colored man of the rank of colonel who was permitted to go to France in the combatant or any other branch of the service. After a brief period in the earlier campaigns he was invalided home very much against his will. The 15th New York was commanded by Colonel William Hayward, a white man. He was devoted to his black soldiers and they were very fond of him. Officers immediately subordinate to him were white men. The District of Columbia Battalion might have retained its colored commander, Major James E. Walker, 
as he was a fine soldierly figure and possessed of the requisite ability, but he was removed by death while his unit was still training near Washington. Some of the Negro officers of National Guard organizations retained their commands, but the majority were superseded or transferred before sailing or soon after arrival in France. The 369th, the 370th and the 372nd Infantry Regiments in the United States Army, mentioned as having been formed from the Colored National Guard units, became a part of the 93rd Division. Another regiment, the 371st, formed from the draft forces was also part of the same division. This division was brigaded with the French from the start and saw service through the war alongside the French toilers with whom they became great friends. There grew up a spirit of which, side by side, they faced and smashed the savage Hun, never wavered or changed. Besides the soldiers from Illinois, New York, Ohio, District of Columbia, Connecticut, Maryland and Tennessee, there were Negro contingents from Mississippi and South Carolina in the 93rd Division. One of the regiments of this division, the 369th 15th New York was of the first of the American forces to reach France. Following mutual admiration between these two widely different representatives of the human family, that during the period in the expeditionary force of regulars which reached France June 13, 1917, being among the first 100.000 that went abroad. However, the 93rd Division, exclusively Negro, had not been fully formed then and the regiment did not see much real fighting until the spring and summer of 1918. Illustration Negro nurses carrying banner of famous Negro regiment, marching down Fifth Avenue, New York, in Great Parade which opened Red Cross Drive. The 92nd Division was another exclusively Negro division. There were many more Negro troops in training in France and large numbers at training camps in this country. But the 92nd and 93rd, being the earlier formed and trained divisions, saw practically all the fighting. Units belonging to one or both divisions fought with special distinction in the forest of Argonne, near Chateau 3, Belleau Wood, St. Mihiel District, Champagne Sector, at Metz and in the Vosges Mountains. In the 92nd Division was the 325th Field Signal Battalion, the only Negro signal unit in the American Army. The division also contained the 349th, 350th and 351st Artillery Regiments, each containing a machine gun battalion the 317th Trench Mortar Battery, the balance being made up of Negro engineers, hospital units, etc. and the 365th, 366th, 367th and 368th Infantry Regiments, enlisted, drafted and assigned to active service. Upwards of 400.000 Negroes participated in the war. The number serving abroad amounted to about 200.000. They were inducted into the cavalry, infantry, field and coast artillery, radio wireless telegraphy, etc. Medical Corps, Ambulance and Hospital Corps, Sanitary and Ammunition Trains, Stevedore Regiments, Labor Battalions, Depot Brigades and Engineers. They also served as regimental clerks, surveyors and draftsmen. 60 served as chaplains and over 350 as YMCA secretaries. There being a special and highly efficient Negro branch of the YMCA numerous others were attached to the war camp community service in cities adjacent to the army camps. Negro nurses were authorized by the War Department for service in base hospitals at six army camps Funston, Sherman, Grant, Dix, Taylor and Dodge. Race women also served as canteen workers in France and in charge of hostess houses in this country. One Negro, 
Ralph W. Tyler, served as an accredited war correspondent, attached to the staff of General Pershing, Dr. R. R. Moden, who succeeded the late Booker T. Washington as head of the Tuskegee Institute, was sent on a special mission to France by President Wilson and Secretary Baker, a race woman, Mrs. Alliston Barr Nelson of Wilmington, Delaware was named as a field worker to mobilize the Negro women of the country for war work. Her activities were conducted in connection with the Women's Committee of the Council of National Defense, the most conspicuous honor paid to a Negro by the administration and the War Department, was in the appointment, October 1, 1917, of Emma J. Scott as Special Assistant to the Secretary of War. This was done that the administration might not be accused of failing to grant full protection to the Negroes and that a thorough examination might be made into all matters affecting their relation to the war and its many agencies. Having been for 18 years confidential secretary to Booker T. Washington, and being at the time of his appointment secretary of the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute for Negroes, Mr. Scott was peculiarly fitted to render necessary advice to the War Department with respect to the Negroes of the various states, to look after all matters affecting the interests of Negro selectives and enlisted men and to inquire into the treatment accorded them by the various officials connected with the War Department, in the position occupied by him. He was thus enabled to obtain a proper perspective both of the attitude of selective service officials to the Negro, and of the Negro to the war, especially to the draft. In a memorandum on the subject addressed to the Provost Marshal General, December 12, 1918, he wrote, The attitude of the Negro was one of complete acceptance of the draft. In fact of an eagerness to accept its terms, there was a deep resentment in many quarters that he was not permitted to volunteer, as white men by the thousands were permitted to do in connection with National Guard units and other branches of military service which were closed to colored men. One of the brightest chapters in the whole history of the war is the Negro's eager acceptance of the draft and his splendid willingness to fight. His only resentment was due to the limited extent to which he was allowed to join and participate in combatant or fighting units the number of colored draftees accepted for military duty, and the comparatively small number of them claiming exemptions, as compared with the total number of white and colored men called and drafted, presents an interesting study and reflects much credit upon this racial group. Over 1.200 Negro officers, many of them college graduates, were commissioned during the war. The only training camp exclusively for Negro officers was at Fort Des Moines, Iowa. This camp ran from June 1st 